Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here, once again, flying the ship solo as we embark in, in, into our first official episode of, uh, of our year-long imitation uh, series, um, in which each month we're going to be kind of doing something that uh, some other podcast has done previously. We're just going to do our own spin on it. And I'm really excited that we are here together uh, for this episode as we open up The Vault, officially opening up the vault with our first uh our first movie um because they're not all movies but our first uh our first entry into the vault is in fact a movie and it's very appropriate that the um you know in a year long and a year long theme in which we are going to be kind of jocking the style of some other podcasts and uh radio shows and things it's very appropriate that our first entry for the vault to be locked away for uh you know for safekeeping for the you know for the future of humanity very appropriate that our first property is a movie about uh, an, ant- an antagonistic force that replicates things. That's right. For this first episode, uh, and for this first entry into the vault, I am putting 1982's The Thing into the vault. Um, that's where we're starting here. I can't. Re- I really can't wait to get into this. This is going to be a really fun discussion with y'all. However, we have to start with the lightning round question. So, if you're familiar with the uh, with the movie The Thing, uh, and I hope you are, um, I sup- I feel like that the the people that listen to this, you probably are familiar with this. If not, uh, go ahead and pause this, watch the movie, come back. You'll be better for it. Um, so go ahead, pause it now. I'll wait for you. Okay, welcome back. Now we got to start this with a lightning round question. So um, since you've just seen, since you just now have just seen um, The Thing, this is going to make more sense. So. What landscape would be even more nightmarish than Antarctica to be stuck in, to be stuck in with a dangerous monster on the loose? So you know, obviously, the, one of the big one of the big themes, uh, you know, one of the big themes with uh, the thing is uh, the sense of isolation, and it doesn't get much more isolated. <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't get much more isolating than being stuck in the Antarctic tundra, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from civilization. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that whole, the whole setting for this movie is, uh, is pitch perfect. It really helps amp up that particular aspect of the movie, this paranoia and this isolation. But, uh, what would be worse? What do you think would be worse than Antarctica? And, um, I'll give you my quick answer here. I basically, you know, any kind of extreme condition would be, would be terrible. So I'm just going to invert it as a, uh, as a big person, as a large man, uh, one of the things that I would certainly hate, the, the, one of the things I do hate more so than being cold, is being hot. So how about uh, like deep in the jungles of like the Amazon or something, or um, you know in some some other inhospitable desert situation where it's like 110 degrees all the time. Um, either way, you would have this situation where the the environment is really really rough, and it plays against you in in, in order you know the 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 amazon rainforest is a very can be a very isolated not that i've ever been there but it can be a very isolating place there's a reason why there are um you know there are tribes in the amazon that not that they're uncontacted or anything i mean that's not accurate i don't don't think we i don't think there are any more uncontacted people on the planet at this point um but there are tribes in the amazon that choose to stay there because it is far away from everything else like they don't want to you know they don't want to come they don't necessarily want to, to leave their culture to um, you know be to be assimilated 
into another culture. Um, and the rainforest is perfect for that sort of, you know, kind of staying out of sight, staying out of everyone's way. So I, I think that's that's where I'm going with this one. I, I would hate to be in a super hot environment and in the humidity of, of the rainforest. Um, that's that's where I'm, I'm thinking uh, a, a scenario like the thing would be just as bad, if not worse. Um, at least if I'm cold, I can put on some layers. If you're too hot, what are you going to do? Take off your skin? I mean, I guess... I guess the thing will do it for you, right? So uh, there's your lightning round question. Think about that. Maybe you have some other answer. Uh, you can throw it in the comments. Uh, or, uh, I, don't know, I don't know, mention it in a review. Do something. Interact with us, please. I love it when you guys do that. But uh, we're going we're gonna to get into it now. We're going to jump into the full discussion of our first vault entry, The Thing from 1982. I think it's important to start with a little background info here um, for this for this movie. Um, so obviously this is directed by one of the all-time horror masters, one of my all-time, if not my all-time favorite director, uh, John Carpenter. Uh, it's written by Bill Lancaster, and there's also a story credit for John W. Campbell. And uh, John W. Campbell is also he also has a story credit on the 2011 prequel, has a, a story credit on the 1951 original. Uh, that's because Joe, uh, John W. Campbell wrote the original novella called Who Goes There? And uh, the changes, uh, the changes are uh, especially to well, the changes are, are nominal. Basically, uh, obviously, the cast and things are smaller than uh, than than the the cast in the book or the novella. But um, basically, a lot of the elements from the novella are there, very much right on the nose um, in every version of uh, in every version of the thing. So um, you know, so John uh, John W. Campbell got like a full story by credit um, as opposed to. You know, sometimes you'll see, like, inspired by, based on, whatever. But I'm pretty sure John W. Campbell got a full story by credit. Um, the cast is absolutely outstanding. Um, I'm going to pull this up real quick here so I get everyone's name correct. Obviously, we have, uh, obviously we have starting off with uh, Kurt Russell, um, one, of, uh, one of Carpenter's favorites. Uh, Kurt Russell, R.J. McCready, the helicopter pilot. We got Wilford Brimley as Blair, the senior biologist. Uh, T.K. Carter as Knowles, the cook. Uh, David Clennon as Palmer, one of the mechanics. Keith David uh, as Childs, our chief mechanic. Richard Dysert as uh, Dr. Co- Dr. Copper, the physician. Charles Hallahan as Norris, the geologist. Peter Maloney as George Bennings, the meteorologist. Richard Maser as Clark, the dog handler. Joe Polis as Fuchs, the assistant biologist. Donald Moffat as Gary, the station commander. And Thomas Waits as Windows, the radio operator. Um, fantastic cast. Um, uh, you've, I could, you, you know, you know, the names of, you know, Kurt Russell, you know, Keith David, you, you know, Wilford Brimley. Um, you probably know Donald Moffat from a lot of things. If you look him up, you probably know Charles Hallahan from a lot of things. If you look him up, it's just a cast of, it's a, it's a, such a well put together cast of, of, you know, outside of, uh, Kurt Russell and, um, and Keith David, a lot of really excellent sort of, uh, really excellent sort of, um, character actors and uh you know good uh, good uh, ensemble actors in this particular cast it's a it's a fantastic cast uh let's see <clears throat> i do think one of the most important things when we do when we do talk about this movie and we get into it and it's it, for all the glowing things that i'm going to say about this movie and there's gonna be a lot of glowing things i'm gonna say about this movie this movie was originally critically panned it was a box office failure it actually resulted in john carpenter uh being bought out by i want to i can't i want to say it was universal 
um, originally had signed him to like a three or four picture deal. And after this movie failed and was just not a box office success. And then obviously also, um, you know, taken to task by the critics, they actually canceled. They bought him out of that, uh, out of that contract instead of uh, letting him make all the movies. And he, Carpenter took this very, very personally. He was just so, so distraught, um, over the reception to, over the reception to the thing. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's not hard to imagine why, um, upon hindsight, like we were, we were deep in, we're just a few, a few weeks removed. I want to say from, uh, from ET or possibly a few months removed from ET, uh, day, uh, you know, making its debut. So like our, you know, we already had like a lovable, cuddly, fun alien. Um, there's also a lot of science fiction and fantasy released in 1982. Um, kind of got drowned out. There's, I remember reading some other stories about how this movie was also under promoted. Um, there, what promotion there was, it didn't really sort of let on to the, the true overwhelming, excuse my phone there, I forgot to silence it. The true overwhelming bleakness of, of this particular movie was just sort of, which you can kind of understand why, a why, uh, a, you know, a studio isn't going to sort of prey on the bleakness of a particular movie. Um, so, but nonetheless, it, you know, a lot of people went into it not not understanding what was going to happen, and um, you know, were truly shocked and kind of revolted by the how violent and horrific and disgusting this movie actually was. And just for like a quick sampling here, I want to get to went over to uh, Roger Ebert's original review of the thing uh, from January first, nineteen eighty two, or maybe or I could be reading that wrong, but regardless, um, so this is these are Ebert's actual words on the thing. And it's just so funny. This is one of those things. This is one of those things um, that Ebert and Siskel and Ebert really, you know, as as a big time movie buff, um, growing up with, uh, growing up with their TV show. Um, I love, I, I loved Siskel and Ebert at the, at the movies, but they are very frequently when you go back and look at some of the movies that re, that they reviewed, um, they are very frequently wrong. Either <laughs> either they are proven wrong initially because something was actually good, and it just, it just took more time for it to kind of gain an appreciation or they really liked bad movies happens all the time with Roger and e- with Cisco and Ebert. So this is uh, Roger Ebert's original review of, uh, of the thing. The thing is a great, I'm not going to do, Oh, by the way, I'm not going to do a, try to do an impression. The thing is a great barf bag movie. All right. But is it any good? I found it disappointing for two reasons, the superficial characterizations and the implausible and the plausible behavior of scientists on that icy outpost. Characters have never been Carpenter's strong point. He says he likes his movies to create emotions in his audiences, and I guess he'd rather see us jump six inches than get involved in the personalities of his characters. This time, though, despite some roughed-out typecasting and a few reliable stereotypes, the drunk, the psycho, the hero, he has populated his ice station with, uh, with people whose primary purpose in life is to get jumped on from behind. The few scenes that develop character the develop characterizations are overwhelmed by the scenes in which men in which men are just setups for an attack by the thing. I'm gonna skip ahead here just a little bit. There's a, another paragraph in here, but um, get to the end of it here. The thing is basically then just a geek show, a gross out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. There's nothing wrong with that. I like being scared, and I was scared by many scenes in the thing. But it seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and the technology and not to, and to allow the story uh, and people to become secondary. 
because this material has been done before and better, especially in the original The Thing and uh, and in Alien, there's no need to see this version unless you are interested in what The Thing might look like while starting from anonymous greasy organs extruding giant crab legs and transmuting itself into a dog. Amazingly, I'll bet that thousands, if not millions, of moviegoers are interested in just in seeing just that. Ooh, that was Ebert. Um just lambasting the thing, uh, really going in after it. And it's funny, like, it's funny now because um, this one part here uh, towards the end, it seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and the technology uh, to allow the story people to become secondary. I mean, it's not, that's not a false characterization, but boy, oh boy, do I wish when I saw an action movie, a horror movie, a sci-fi movie, Boy, do I wish that the director concentrated on the special effects uh, as opposed to just making everything a green screen gleep glop uh, like they do now. Um, but uh, Ebert, Ebert got this one egregiously wrong. Um, but it did take time for this movie, obviously, to gain uh, a, to gain an appreciation. And while there were, I, I remember, you know, five, ten years ago, there were all these articles about all the things that millennials are killing off because, you know, we don't, uh, you know, I don't know, we don't... Um, what was one thing that was particular, particularly funny that millennials were killing off? Hold on one second. I got to look this up. Okay. I knew I had this somewhere. It's a whole list of things that millennials are killing because of our change in spending habits, lifestyle choices, living choices, that kind of stuff. Um, and millennials were, were just killing everything. So, um, and these are headlines from various magazines. So like millennials are killing the golf industry, business insider. Uh, millennials are obsessed with the style of life and it's killing retailers. Millennials are killing the movie business. New York Post. Millennials are killing the golf industry again. Um, from an uh, agency, advertising agency blog. Uh, will the millennial generation kill Home Depot? Forbes. Millennials are killing relationships, and we should be concerned. Um, are millennials killing the running trend? Are millennials killing wine? Promiscuous millennials are killing McDonald's. How millennials lack manners. Uh, how millennials lack of manners is killing class. Uh, millennials are killing off paper napkins. Are millennials killing the car industry? How here's how millennials have killed crowdfunding. Are millennials killing credit? Millennials, we are murderers, murderers. Um, but here's one thing that millennials did not kill. In fact, it's the millennials that saved the thing. Um, it really is a, right about. Um, there's a there's like a re-release of like a, a Blu-ray re-release of the thing in like uh, 2000. I want to say like five or six. And it really helped catch a new, it caught a whole new younger audience. And from there, the demand grew um, and the appreciation grew for the thing. Uh, to, you know, to heights that, you know, there obviously were horror movie fanatics that were already into the thing because of the gross out special effects and the incredible gross out special effects. Um, but it definitely garnered a whole new audience um, in the last uh, 20 years or so, driven by the millennial interest in this movie. So much so that after, um, you know, after the first like kind of issue of, of reissue of, uh, or I should say like DVD versions or Blu-ray, excuse me, Blu-ray um, uh, conversions of the movie, that there were then there was demand for special editions with, um, you know, alternate cuts and director and star commentary, et cetera, et cetera. Like it really takes off, um, you know, post 2006 to about like 2014, 15, um, it's really when uh, the thing gets sort of its official time in the sun, if you will, and gets the proper gets the proper reevaluation as 
not just a great horror movie, but one of the one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And one of the reasons that I'm putting it in here, uh, and we'll get into all these reasons a little bit more in depth. One of the reasons that I'm putting this in here, uh, I think the thing is the best cross section of sci-fi and horror uh, that's ever been made. So millennials, while we did kill off so many other things, we did save the thing. And everyone out there, you are welcome. Now, the funny thing about this movie, even though I love it very, very much, and I've seen it probably 15 to 20 times, somewhere in that neighborhood, um, I was a latecomer to this movie. I, I was late to the party. And it was probably actually around like 2003, 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. Actually, probably 2005, 2006. Because the first time I ever saw it, uh, I saw it in college during something that we ended up calling Weird Movie Day. Where uh, on Sundays after all of our partying shenanigans uh, were over from the previous night, we would go down to uh, we would go down to Video Spectrum, this um, this mom and pop video store, which we need more of in this world. And I'm I'm pretty sure I've explained that ad nauseum. But uh, there is a difference. There's a difference between a blockbuster and a difference between a curated video store. Uh, there's a massive difference, and that's what this place is. This is a place that when you walk in, they remember what you got the week or what you were looking for the week before. And they have suggestions tailored to, you know, like, hey, this is what I'm going to help you find. Blockbuster is just 58 copies of Titanic on the shelf, right? Um, So we would go to Video Spectrum in Bowling Green. um, And we would just, we would immediately go to, we, we would read three or four movies, depending on how long they were. And then we would literally just sit around uh, suffering from our hangovers all day while we watched some bizarre sci-fi movie, you know, some foreign horror movie or something. And uh, the thing was in the rotation. Uh, so that's where I first saw it. And it, it just, it was, it was immediate. It was right away that this movie like jumped out to me and I, I really like appreciated it more so than as, even more so than just some fun some fun hangover entertainment that, that we were going through at that point in time that we were trying to survive. Um, it really jumped out at me right away as something that I knew that I was really, that I really enjoyed and something that I knew and I did end up watching it again. Um, you know, in just, I think like later, probably the next day, I think I watched it again before I returned it uh, to, to video spectrum because I knew, I knew right away this was something that needed multiple watches simply simply from the fact that the the plot and the story and everything kind of you need one or two watches to kind of see, like realize like there's stuff that you're missing right that there's uh, maybe there's a hint here or a clue there as to um, as to who has been assimilated by the thing uh, you know there's some kills and things that are <clears throat> they're hidden from us we're not 100 percent sure who is who is in who is in the the same area as the thing at any given time um, so that was like the first part of it um, the you know, the second part of it was, I, I really, I really like the, even, even in a hungover state, um, just kind of lying there, you know, lying there on a couch, like a, like a useless sack of crap. Um, even in that kind of state, I could still feel the tension and the paranoia of, of this movie just bleeding out of the screen. And I wanted to kind of watch it with, you know, with a more, more clear head. Um, and that, that required the second watch was to kind of really kind of soak in the atmosphere. Um, and when you do get like the, 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 when you really do have a chance to sit down and appreciate the atmosphere, it really jumps out at you again. And then of course, lastly, uh, man, 
I, I had to see this again simply because of the incredible special effects work and the way in which the way in which these people were killed and assimilated. Um, it was truly like truly like nothing at, at that certainly not in nineteen eighty two, but really even you know twenty some years later. Um, no one was, no one was making movies with these sorts of bizarre, uh, with these sorts of bizarre kills. Um, certainly not until, until the, uh, very underwhelming prequel movie, uh, came out in 2011. Uh, so I guess actually in that case, millennials did kind of kill the, the prequel because we did give rise to the thing prequel. But anyway, um, yeah, it, there's just so much here that like, it really, it, it, for me, this movie was one that jumped off the page, uh, well, I guess not the page, jumped out of the screen, <laughs> that makes more sense, it jumped off the screen, like, almost right away. It, it just was something that, and every now and then I see a movie like that, I, I watch something like that, where it it's it's almost immediately this thing is be, is begging to be watched again. And really, there aren't that many that, like, that have done, there aren't that many properties whatsoever that have done that for me. We're going to talk about one of them um, in, in, in the coming weeks. But you know, it's stuff like it's stuff like Breaking Bad, jumps out at you right away. Um, Stranger Things, the, the that that jumped out at me right away as something I thought like, okay, this is this is something that's going to be worth viewing again. Um, so there there are things that um, uh, there are things that, that jump out like that that you know that just like whatever it is, you 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 immediately find the things that you're liking and you're kind of taking mental note of them. That like okay, upon second viewing, I have to look for this. I have to look for that. Whatever, and this the thing was immediately one of those movies. All right, so what what makes the thing worthy of a spot in the vault? And as I mentioned before, I think the the main one of the one of the things we can start with right at the top is that I think that this is one of the best examples of sci horror, of where science fiction and horror meet. And I say that knowing full well that possibly people out there right now are what about alien i love alien i love alien a lot it is one of my all-time favorite movies as well i just think that i just think that this has with the added element of this sort of mystery of kind of having to kind of figure out the figure out the mystery in order to sort of survive the um to survive this particular uh to survive the thing um Whereas there's not, it's not necessarily a mystery to solve where to, to survive the alien, right? You just, you know, once we, once we know this thing has gotten bigger, we just need to kind of figure out like where the safe parts are. And I'm overly simplifying alien. I realize that, but, but I, I just, I like the thing better than alien. I just, I just do. And believe me, you will, you will find no bigger fan of the alien franchise than me. I cannot wait for the for the TV series. I cannot wait for. I think the new one is called Romulus. Um, I'm, I'm I'm an apologist for both for Covenant especially, but even Prometheus, which I think is vastly underrated. Um, but I I just think that the thing does. I just think that the thing does what it's trying to do better in this in the in that in that micro genre that subgenre of uh, science fiction and horror sci horror. So that's like the first thing that that really does it for me right there that there's this is like a sterling example of what you want out of a science fiction horror movie where there's enough science there's enough fiction there's enough science fiction there's enough horror there's enough mystery it's all there in equal parts no part overwhelms it um there's you know we don't need to get too far into the science we just know that there's that there is sort of a kind of a sciencey explanation for things for the alien what it does we just know enough of it 
um, to to get an understanding that this is something, uh, you know, how dangerous the thing is. Um, so I think that's first and foremost. First and foremost, um, you know, this is a sterling example of sci- science fiction horror. The second thing here, as I mentioned before, uh, I th- as I mentioned before that the tension, the way it jumps off the screen and it makes you feel just as tense. I'm telling you, this is this is a great movie to watch in like a dark room by yourself. You will feel that sort of tension and fear and paranoia uh, almost right away. I mean, it basically starts about 90, 90 seconds into the movie with the Norwegians uh, shouting and, and shooting at the dog, uh, at the at the dog thing. So it, it starts almost right away, and it really never relents, even into the final scene where McCready and Childs kind of face off. That we, you know, even though the at that point everything is supposedly has been resolved. There's still tension between the two characters and tension uh, over the whole situation. Like, are they, you know, is, did they win? If, even if they won, did they really kind of win? Which is, I don't want to get, I don't want to get into too many details there. Cause I have a little bit more on that here coming up. Um, but beginning to end, this movie is very, very tense. Um, and I think, I think that a lot of, a lot of modern horror movies, um, need to take a lesson in how to build and maintain tension throughout a movie. From uh, if not if not this particular movie, then take your pick for a John for for, for a John Carpenter movie because uh, pretty much by and large his entire catalog has, does a really good job of keeping a partic- keeping momentum going. Be it tension, be it drama, be it you know be it um, fear and paranoia, whatever it is. His movies, uh, you know, comedy and, and disbelief. His movies do a great job of keeping that sort of pushing forward from scene one to the final scene. So that's another reason why it's up there. Um, I, I again, I, I love that. I love that the the characters are sort of. You know, we always talk about uh, movie characters being proxies for the audience. I love that it. You really are sort of you. You are from from the rip the uh, all these characters really are from the rip your proxy and that we are just they are in the same sort of mystery and and, and level of understanding uh that we are even the people that kind of are experts you know the biologist and doctor or whatever they don't understand the situation fully so we don't understand the situation fully so when something happens it surprises us when there's a more mystery to unsolve they're kind of unsolving it with us right like no one in the movie has there's no one no one in the movie has too much knowledge, right, of, of what's going on. That's, that's that's when you get, like, a character in a movie, in a, in, a, in a movie that's not written as well, just gives, like, ex, exposition dumps where, like, how does this character know all this? Why do they know all these things? Well, someone has to know all these things because the writers didn't do a very good job of figuring out how to get their point across. So someone has to just kind of tell everyone this is what's going on. Because the point is getting across without without that exposition, um, really, except for except for really a couple of cases, and it's really not even. I, I wouldn't even call it like unneeded exposition. It's just it's just dialogue that makes sense. Um, you know, our characters are are our proxies are feeling the same thing that we are, which is another thing that I really really like. You know, solve the mystery, figure out who's unassimilated, and if you figure it out, maybe you survive. And we're kind of trying to figure this out along with them to see who does survive. And then obviously. Um, here, you know, one of the other big ones, the, the special effects are absolutely on another level. Um, the, it's not just the, the special effects of people getting killed. It's like the, the bizarre ways in which they are killed. 
and the gruesomeness of it, the amount of blood and gore, the um, the way people are being twisted and incorporated into the thing and, and being, you know, just absorbed, basically. And then the, the you know, obviously there's some really famous scenes. Uh, the the scene where the where uh, Copper is trying to uh, resuscitate, uh, I think it's Copper, yeah, um, trying to resuscitate um, Clark, I believe it is. Oh, gosh. Can't, can't remember if it's Clark or not. Um, I might be I might be swapping names here real quick. But um, where he's trying to use the um, you know the uh, the the paddles to to restart his heart, and we you know his arms sink into you know this chest, which essentially becomes a giant mouth, snaps his arms off, the head detaches and grows legs like a spider. Like that kind of shit is it's on it's next level for its time. I mean, really, these special effects held up they still hold up in their own way, right? Like because they're practical effects, the tactileness, um, the realness of them still holds up. Obviously, if we were to do something practical like this now, it would be much more seamless and much more gruesome and scary. But the fact that these effects still are passive, these effects look better than these effects look better than like an explosion I saw on some show on CBS recently. So, and you know, we're talking 40 years in between. And they still fucking hold up. It's unbelievable. And this is just, you know, this is to, all the credit to, um, you know, all the credit to Carpenter, all the credit to uh, Rob Botton, who is the, was the special effects, um, you know, guru for this movie. Uh, it, it's incredible. Like, it's just, it's one of those, it's, again, just an absolute standout for, an absolute standout for, like, what movie special effects are supposed to be. So another, another perfect example for, this is how you do horror movie special effects. So another thing, another notch in the belt uh, for the thing uh, getting gaining entry into the vault. And then I think one that became more apparent on my most recent rewatch um, was how, you know, thinking about this episode. So I was trying to think, approach the movie in, in a multitude of different ways when, when I was watching it. And one of the things that I really, really love about this movie and really kind of stood out more recently was how by Carpenter not answering every question and leaving a lot of stuff unresolved for the characters, for the story, um, it leaves this movie open in a very, very good way to both debate and interpretation, which I, I think is something that is something that is, you know, especially when, when a movie has a mystery folded into it. I like when we leave, even after, even after the bulk of the questions have been answered, I like when we are left with a few more questions in any kind of mystery movie at all. And I think it works really well here. So you, just for an example here, like the, the big debate that um, has in more recent years, um, you know, you can find YouTube videos on it and articles and blog articles and things on it. The big debate, right, is whether or not McCready or Child is the thing or if both are the thing or if neither are the thing all of these possibilities all of these outcomes mccready is the thing child is the thing they're both the thing neither is the thing all of these things are in fact if you watch the if you watch the movie and you're very careful about how you're tracing who interacts with who all of these things are equally possible and um the direction for both of them was the direction from carpenter from both of them was like just neither of you neither of you are the thing to, so essentially we told Keith David and he told um, Kurt Russell 
act act this scene out as though you are neither of you are the thing. But that was just the that was just their acting direction. When it came to writing it, they did not they didn't there there is no note anywhere that says McCready is the thing or isn't the thing. There is no note that says child is the thing or isn't the thing. It's just that's just how the scene is written. It just ends with them kind of sharing this laugh over um you know, over the re- resolution of the situation, sharing a bottle of whiskey, which may or may not actually be whiskey, one of the things to look for. Um, so it just ends. And there is no, there's no alternate cut. There's no, actually take that back. I think there might be an alternate cut where there's a little bit more of a hint. Um, I, I got to double check on that. But the way it was written was just, we don't know. Um, the situation was resolved and maybe one or both are the thing. Maybe neither of them are the thing. And, you know, even even sitting here kind of talking this out through, just thinking about how they both kind of interact with each other, they could be interacting with each other and laughing because they are both a thing. And they both know that they're, you know, they're, the plan failed and they're both going to die. Or they're sitting there laughing, you know, sharing a laugh and sharing that last drink with each other because neither of them are the thing. They won. And but guess what? It fucked them over anyway. They're going to die. They're going to die out in the cold anyway. Um, so all of these things, the way, the way that the the movie wraps itself up, all of these things are equally possible. And and it's, everyone has, you know, based on evidence throughout the film, everyone has a different opinion on it. And I wouldn't say like those opinions are correct or not, but there's just, they all have supporting evidence to, uh, to kind of shed some kind of light on, on the ending. Right. So that's the big debate with, um, you know, that always comes out of this particular movie. And I think, so I don't think I need to touch on that. Um, I I I tend to think that neither of them are the thing, um, but you could you could convince me that to me it's either neither of them are the thing or Child is the thing, based on the interaction that's a little bit stilted that he has with McCready at the end. But um, I, to me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it doesn't matter what the if Carpenter one day uh, were to come forward and just say. By the way, Childs is the thing, or McCready is the thing. It wouldn't. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me because the ending is perfect. Um, it's a perfect John Carpenter ending, which we will talk about. Uh, so I don't. I don't want to get too, any farther into that, um, even though I got pretty far into it. So I also. So just to kind of get on the interpretation thing, I think this is an important thing because. Um, by by the way, take if you're taking a drink every time you hear the word thing. Good lord. Um, you're smashed right now, possibly need an ambulance to come get you. I apologize. But by keeping the thing formless, save for a few shock moments, like when the, the alien is, is, uh, assimilating people or the, all the dogs in the shed are being, uh, smushed together in a revolting ball of, of meat. Um, because it's formless and it looks like us, this allows the viewer to interpret interpret or assign any messaging that they want to uh, on top of the on, on top of the, the situation that's happening and you know we talked about this before horror movies very often are um, very often are vehicles for some kind of message uh, usually you know usually that it's usually you can kind of pick it out it's more obvious you know when we talked about the fly right um, that was a, a movie about David Cronenberg literally was thinking about cancer when he was writing that movie and how and, you know, that's why every scene that uh, every scene that we're 
something significant happens, you know, changes on Jeff Goldblum, he's in the bathroom because that's where a lot of people who are dying of cancer or some other kind of chronic disease, that's where they make a lot of their first discoveries, right? Like their hair comes out when they're in the shower or, you know, they're brushing their teeth and like a tooth comes loose, you know, something like that. They're, you, get, you know, they, you know, their pee is weird, right? Like all of those discoveries kind of happen in the bathroom. And that's why when, uh, the most, the most, the first signs of profound change with Jeff Goldblum, those scenes all happen in the bathroom because he was thinking about the way people discover that they have a chronic disease, in particular cancer. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can. So very frequently, these, hor- I mean, all movies are about something other than what they're about in some capacity. But certainly, stuff in genre, um, be it horror, be it sci-fi, there is definitely a, an additional message there as well. But because we're not giving the thing any kind of any kind of definitive shape and because it is essentially just us this allows for a wide variety of interpretations for interpretations for what the what the the true meaning is and i I don't think there's necessarily one true meaning that that carpenter had in mind but some of the things that um in more recent years that others have assigned to it are very interesting um one came from I'm going, to use, I'm going to start this one off because it came from an episode from another podcast that I really enjoy, uh, Blank Check, when they did their John Carpenter breakdown, and they talked about this movie. They had on a they had on a trans um, a trans film critic, uh, you know, an entertainment writer, I, and whose name is escaping me right now. Um, but you know, obviously, their you know the the change the late change in their life, very significant late change in their life, um, you know. Uh, identifying as a as a different gender and thus you know living as a different gender really kind of made the trans the trans allegory and also you know for that matter uh, I guess you could kind of expand that to um, you know any kind of person be they trans gay lesbian who is not out um, you can kind of expand that allegory to fit the thing pretty well pretty pretty neatly actually um, so if you're thinking about it from like a trans allegory this is a creature trying to blend in amongst a group of men even though it knows deep down inside it is not a man um and that's you know that's the that's the very that's the back of the that's like the quick blurb uh on this very excellent episode you should go listen to it um this very excellent episode of blank check covering this particular film um but that's that's sort of the blurb right that this you can understand you can relate almost in a way to the thing if you were a person who is kind of harboring I don't want to say like a dark secret, but it's harboring something inside of you and all you're doing is pretending. Um, basically, you can understand how one can draw those parallels to the thing and to the and to the thing that you have not let out in the world yet. How about a communist allegory? Um, and, you know, given the time frame, it would make sense. You know, 1982, um, the unseen spread of communist ideologies amongst a group resulting in extreme paranoia. Right. Like that's a big element of the thing is how everyone is so quick to turn on each other. Um, you know, there's obviously the, the blood, the blood test scene where tensions are super high and no one trusts anybody. And you can kind of think about that as this. And, and you know, and given the fact that um, given the fact that, uh, you know, they're testing this dark red blood, you could kind of draw this draw this allegory to the way, uh, you know, the, the fear of the spread of communist ideals and um an, an ideology and, and communist thinking through an otherwise um you know through well what's an american outpost as 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 we know 
So um, there's a communist allegory there. There's also a disease allegory here that a lot of that a lot of people have kind of floated throughout the years, be it HIV, be it cancer, whatever. There's also a disease allegory here. Um, one that I kind of uh, I'll, I'll give you my allegory that I kind of cooked up upon most recent viewing. And I see this as the loss of the authentic self is, is this sort of allegory that I see at play here. Um, the authentic self is who you are at your core. And if you pretend to be something else for too long, you can lose that authentic self completely. Um, and when you do lose your authentic self, you do all sorts of, and by the way, I'm doing a little bit of pop psychology here and just kind of shrinking this down a little bit. Um, so I don't, you know, so we don't have to get into some like deep terms necessarily, but when you, when you lose your authentic self, you will, this will cause all sorts of psychological damage, um, to, to yourself, to others, it'll harm relationships with others. Um, it, it, it causes, it causes damage that, you know, that spirals out from the center, uh, you being the center, or I guess the, the lack of you being the center, it'll just continuously spiral out farther and farther and farther when you lose your authentic self. And I could, I can see that in this particular film that the, you know, the, the thing has to pretend to be human for so long or do a dog at first, but then human for so long that it, you know, it's, it's doing riskier and riskier behaviors to try to escape, um, you know, to try to keep itself hidden. Um, you know, it's once, once people figure out that like it's someone amongst them is, is being, you know, copied is, has been assimilated and copied, then it has to, the thing has to then engage in more behaviors that prove to be damaging to the others around the others around it and the secret that it's holding, or I should say the self that it is. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, this isn't a perfect allegory or anything like that, but it's just something that you can see in it now, I think. Um, here's, here's another one that, that kind of struck me too upon this most recent watch and, you know, take this how you will. I'm not sure that the thing is inherently a hostile villain. Um, I think that we, when Chem and I did our, our, our heroes and villains episode, our good versus evil episodes, uh, we talked about different types of villains and how there's a, a whole genre, subgenre of movies where the quote unquote, the, the villain really just, I think we actually, we use the term antagonist, um, because it's not really villainy, but there's a whole category of movies where there is a force of nature. So, you know, something like, um, something like in the ghost of the darkness, there are two lions that were hunting and killing people. Um, and it's based off of a true story, you know, in, uh, I want to say it's like in Tanzania or something like that in, or maybe South Africa, I can't remember, but um, back in like the 1880s or 1890s or no, take that back like 1920s maybe. Um, but regardless, these lions are hunting and killing people. Well, yeah, I mean like they're, it's not good that they're hunting and killing people, but they're lions. They hunt and kill things. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, movies about like, um, oh gosh, you know, like wild bears and things like that, that are, that are hot, you know, that are, uh, affecting people in the wilderness, but like the, the bears aren't inherently evil. They're just forces of nature doing what forces of nature do. And you could kind of categorize the thing because again, we're, we left a lot open and we didn't get into, we didn't get into motivations necessarily. The thing is kind of like a wild animal, even though we know it has, 
even though we know it's an intelligent wild animal, right? Like it crash landed here in a spaceship. Um, so, I mean, it, it knows how to fly a damn spaceship. So it's not, un, it's not like a, a, a run-of-the-mill animal, but it does feel like it could be a force of nature. It's trying to survive. It's trying to survive this ordeal the way it knows best. Assimilate the native life forms that can survive in the environment and then stay hidden to avoid bringing any attention and any violence towards them. Um, that's all, realistically speaking, other than like one instance where the thing uh, uh, bites bites Windows' head and, and kills him during the blood test scene, it is trying to stay off the radar entirely. That's all it's trying to do. Um, and in fact, it's trying to stay off the radar and escape. It the implication in the in the book, the implication is that the the thing will kind of build essentially a spaceship and to get it off of the to get it um, off of the Arctic and and back to either outer space or to the mainland or something like that or you know to to civilization I should say um, Antarctica is a mainland, um, but there's there's really not necessarily because we are because we don't know about what this what the thing actually wants a lot of the stuff about it's it assimilating all life on earth in a matter of days or years or whatever it was and what's what it's trying to do all of that is speculation by the human beings in outpost outpost 31 we don't know all we know for sure is that this thing is trying to escape and get back to its ship um is this sort of a rock solid reading on all this no, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I can admit that you can blow holes through through a lot of through a lot of that, but again, the movie leaves itself open to this kind of possibility because that's what really smart uh, and great and great pieces of art of any variety do, right? Like they they are good at leaving the door open for certain interpretations, for certain um, you know to draw certain allegories to extrapolate extrapolate you, know, you can take one scene and extrapolate it into to something else and that's what i think a lot of a lot of the good the best works of art do right they just leave that door open for us to sort of to, for us to make that next leap basically and i will say where this kind of gets where to me and maybe i need to go back and rewatch the prequel but the prequel seems to paint the thing as much more malicious which I think is kind of a mistake. Well, one of many mistakes with that movie. Um, but I think it, it does kind of reduce it to a little bit more of a one-dimensional modern horror villain um, than possibly, you know, a kind of wild animal that we just don't understand, um, which I think is much more interesting than what's happening. It's it's much more interesting than anything that's happening in the prequel movie. Um, but neither here nor there. I also think that there are two standout two standout scenes in this movie that kind of solidify it as, as being vault worthy as well. And start with the most, probably the most famous one, the blood test scene where we have, uh, we have windows, nulls, Palmer. Um, oh gosh. We basically have at this point, all of their survivors, um, are, are tied up. Childs is there. Um, and McCready has a theory about, um, about outing the um, outing the the thing um, for you know for which one it actually is that the way that it sort of in the previous scene with the um, I guess I could have picked that scene as well with the the resuscitation scene where the doctor loses his arms uh, to the I don't know the chest mouth the the giant gaping chest maw um, of of the thing 
he notes that the how the head you know separates and becomes its own entity then uh and, and crawls away tries to crawl away before he blasts it with the uh um with a flamethrower so uh, McCready has this sort of theory that this working theory that um that the blood that every every cell is like kind of like its own almost like its own organism so it'll try to get away from any kind of danger right that that it's that you know that the body was being the body of the doctor was or the body of um the body was being burned and like the head separated and crawled tried to crawl away so that this would stand even even down to the the level of like blood cells the blood cells would try to get away um and that would be how they would out whoever is in fact the thing and it's fantastic like the tension of everyone being tied up and like they're all giving their blood samples and the soft you know McCready heating this wire and this is taken straight from the book from the novella um McCready heating up the 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 copper wire to make it you know piping hot and then that soft fizz that almost this like that sound of the of the blood being kind of steaming up and and cooling down the the wire um just sort of as the signal that you're okay that you know you you are you have not been replicated and assimilated and replaced and the the tension from that scene as as it unfolds it's only a few minutes long but it's long enough and the look on everyone's face when they clear you know when they when they clear the pro you know they clear the test but also this kind of idea that like well maybe McCready's full of shit um and he's actually the thing and he's you know, just fucking with us or whatever or maybe McCready's full of shit and he doesn't know he just he's just full of shit he just doesn't know what he's talking about all of these things are sort of present once they you know once there is no one essentially tests as being the thing until Palmer tests as being the thing. And that whole scene with the, you know, the, the way that they did it, the way they tested it, but also like as soon as the, the hot copper hits the blood and the blood lurches out of the, out of the Petri dish and starts crawling back towards Palmer and the way Palmer's body just sort of begins separating and, and contorting and twisting. And, and, you know, even though it's tied up, it, it's, just a fantastic scene and it was so unexpected too like the first time that you see and by the way sorry i'm probably a little late for spoilers uh, this far into an episode but um if you've never seen the thing before spoiler alert um but it's also super unexpected that like when the you know when we're doing the test you're kind of i, I guess i don't know what you're expecting but like it kind of lulls you in because it, it's just you know it's like failed you know i guess past test past test and it's quiet, right? Like it's quiet every time, you know, the, every, the, the sound for you passing the test is just this quiet hiss. And then obviously the, when you don't pass the test, it's what happens with Palmer. And it's just fantastic. It's just the, that reveal as Palmer as the thing is just fantastic. Uh, the, the gruesomeness of his like body, whole body opening and like his head kind of becoming a whole mouth and clamping down on windows. Just fantastic. It's it's one of the best scenes in horror movie history, um, so much so that it's been copied multiple times across genres, um, certainly in the horror genre. Um, a few years later, the movie Leviathan would do the exact same thing. The Blob would do almost the exact same thing. Um, the Thing prequel, the one from 2011, did the exact same kind of thing. Uh, the Faculty, um, the Faculty does it in its own sort of um its own sort of uh, Gen X uh, late, you know, mid late nineties teen way, where they're all uh, they all have to do drugs uh, to prove that they're not one of the uh, they're not one of the alien worms or whatever they were in the faculty. Um, so, a classic scene that 
has been repeated multiple times as a way to sort of you know prove who prove who is the who at least at this point is part of the out group. Um, a scene that has been replicated so many times, and it's fan. It's been replicated sometimes to you know to varying degrees of success. Sometimes the the spin on it is a lot of fun, but I don't think any any other movie has done it as well as the thing does this sort of testing scene. And then, of course, as I talked about it before, the final scene. And this is what I is that if you if you listen to this regularly, and congratulations, I appreciate it. Um, I, I can't believe that you do, but I do appreciate it. Um, the final scene is what I call a, and obviously it's, this is a John Carpenter movie, but it's what I call a John Carpenter ending. And I think this might be the best John Carpenter ending of all time. Um, so what is a John Carpenter ending? You've heard me mention this before, as I said. Um, I most recently mentioned it on our double feature of, I believe, The Purge. Yes, it was it was The Purge and um, whatever else we did. Oh, Battle Royale. Uh, was the other movie that we did a double feature on during Fright Fest. But uh, in The Purge, the movie ends. Um, Ethan Hawke dies. I can't remember his name now. Uh, Ethan Hawke dies, uh, but uh, Lena Headey and the kids, they survive. But there's this there's this sort of, you know, they, they come out of their house at the end of Purge night. You know, it's officially 7 a.m. on March 22nd. Um, they come out of the house and they have survived the night is the goal, right? Um, they survived this terrible ordeal where their house is broken into, their father was killed. They almost killed somebody. They were, they fended off a whole gang of, of hooligans. They survived the night. Oh, and they, they survived, they survived their shitty neighbors, uh, almost killing them as well because they were jealous, but they survived the night, but they're kind of looking out at the world and, you know, looking out at their, their neighborhood as like, okay, so we survived this purge night. However, the clock has already started ticking on the next purge night. And who's to say that our neighbors don't come back and kill us next year when it's fully legal to do so? Who's to say that these people don't come? You know, there's there's the... the, the I'm getting very long-winded about this and going into another movie. Basically, the John Carpenter ending is this. the immediate crisis, The immediate crisis has been dealt with there's a solution. It, it's finished. But the finishing of that crisis reveals that there is yet another crisis on the horizon. And th- that's the John Carpenter ending. It's a very nihilistic kind of ending that you've, even though you feel like you've solved the, you have solved the problem in, in many cases. The problem has been solved. But it's just a piece of a puzzle. It's one, if that comparatively, that problem that you solved is comparatively comparatively small compared to the rest to to, to the, the the problems on the horizon so in this case we have McCready and child sitting there either one is either one or both or neither are the thing um so they kind of they have but in the course of in the course of this like final meetup they have destroyed outpost 31 they destroyed what they think they just definitely destroyed um, the the alien. Um, you know, I, I believe like they hit it with dynamite or something like that. I can't remember exactly the exact method of killing it, um, but they've killed it. But it results in the explosion and destruction of the entire outpost. Uh, everyone is dead. They're the only two left alive. So it's this idea that like this crisis is over. The thing has been defeated. However. There is a slew of problems on the hor- there's a slew of problems right on the horizon. 
Uh, the first one is mainly that, well, okay, you solved this problem, but in the course of solving this problem, you blew up the only thing that is keeping you alive. Um, whether or not both of you, both of you are human or otherwise, um, you're going to die out in the Arctic and freeze to death. Um, I guess in the case of the thing, you would just kind of freeze until something thawed you out again. But the, but the, yeah, the, the, the original crisis has been contained, but at the cost of their lives in some capacity going forward. Or if you want to read into it as one or the other is the thing, it's like, okay, great. The, you know, I, I've, I've killed all the other possible vessels for the thing, but I'm still here. And there's nothing stopping it from taking over my body, even if it doesn't ultimately matter because it's going to die out here anyway. Um, you know, I, I so I, I stopped the, I stopped, like, you know, you, so McCready might be thinking I ended the possibility of this thing getting out any farther, but I'm still here. It's still going to take over and incorporate my body and kill me. But, you know, whatever. I, I guess it's just sort of the, you know, that's just sort of the price to pay for this particular thing. Or you can even read this even farther out that they, you know, they're unsure who the thing actually is. And there's the possibility that if someone comes to find them, that if one if one of them is the thing or if both of them are the thing, then despite the crisis sort of being stopped for the time being, uh, as soon as that thing gets onto gets into civilization, then we're talking much more serious problems. So there is a so we have the you know, the general premise, the general setup for the John Carpenter ending of the crisis being the, the crisis being solved, the crisis being averted, whatever. But here we have there's multiple layers to the things that could happen next. Right. And none of them are particularly good. The the best possible outcome is that neither McCready or Child is the thing and they both freeze to death in Antarctica in Antarctica. That is the absolute best outcome. And that is how you put together a John Carpenter ending. Make it bleak, make it a little bit nihilistic, but, you know, the problem was solved. Now, the interesting thing here is, though, even though this is a movie that I really, really love and I've seen, you know, over a dozen times, I would I would guess like 15, 16 times probably, this is definitely a, a movie that I have to be in the mood in. Now, I'm always down to watch some scenes, you know, like I'm always down to watch um, the blood test scene, uh, to to obsess over the ending scene, whatever. I'm always down for a clip here and there of this particular movie. But this movie for me is like a full experience movie. So I, I don't feel like I just, like, I, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but for a while I was literally watching Beer Fest probably three times a week while I worked. Um, no particular reason. I just wanted something to laugh at, you know, something I could kind of tune out that I've seen so many times. Um, that I can tune out when I needed to, uh, that, you know, I can just kind of almost listen to and it, it make me laugh or whatever. Um, this is not one of those movies. This is a movie where I want to get the full experience, where I want to be wrapped up in the atmosphere and the mystery. This is where I want to, it's got to be late at night, nice, quiet, dark room, maybe an adult beverage in hand, just kind of sitting and ready to, you know, for the next 90 minutes or so, Hundred, I don't even think it's 100 minutes long, but... Um, just, just sit and enjoy the, um, actually I think it's over hundred minutes, but just sit and enjoy the whole atmosphere of it and really kind of sink into it. So that's, so for me, 
it's not necess- it's not just like a throw on any time kind of movie but it's a like there are just times where like there are times where I'm like okay we're we're going to prep we're going to set up we're going to get ready to watch this movie it's going to be a blast tonight so it's one of those kind of movies for me now the thing that we're going to be doing to kind of wrap up this part of the discussion for every single episode this month um in, in so as we're putting these as we're putting these uh, these media properties into the vault we are going to include like a little note with them, you know, for, for the future humans that, that find it. We're going to leave a little note for them about, uh, about this thing that we, that we put away for safekeeping. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm diving headlong into this. And, um, you know, and I should say, let me, let, me, let me backtrack a little bit. Leaving a little note, but it's literally it's just sort of like a couple sentences, right? Like nothing, nothing too long. Just kind of like our, like a, a quick personal explainer for why this thing is in here. Um, drink again. Uh, why why we've decided to put this thing in. And, or some kind of instruction for it, whatever. There's just, you're just leaving a note and you're writing something on it that kind of says something about this particular movie. So I jumped in head first into this particular part of the, part of the assignment. And I opted for a poem. I am leaving future humanity a poem about the thing. And, you know, what, what, for me, this is a poem of like what to expect and kind of how best to view this. So here we go. Here's my poem for the future of humanity about the thing. When fear pricks the soul so acute and doubt creeps twisting the truth, hold fast to thy inner flame. By its bright blaze, see clear through night. True to oneself, doubts take flight. Stand in truth and prevail, we might. That's what I'm leaving for future humanity to, t- to check out when they, do find, uh, when they do find our vault and they do find the thing stuffed in there. All right. And so last but certainly not least, um, to kind of finish the full copy, <laughs> the full copying, uh, lovingly copying the imitation of, uh, of film spotting here, we got to end with the top five. This is something they always do in their podcast. Uh, and it's not just necessarily a top five list of like, uh, you know, my top five favorite movies that are like, the th- you know, in this case, my top five movies that are like the thing. There's usually kind of a twist to them. So <clears throat> I went for a little twist here. And since I didn't only mention it a couple times, and I, there's no reason to mention it more than a couple of times, um, but I mentioned the prequel. I opted to finish off this episode with a top five scenarios for a proper sequel to the thing. So that's where we're going to go with this top five. So uh, let's we'll go um, we'll go you know bottom to top, starting with number five here. And this is a direct continuation of uh, this first one is a direct continuation of the of the original. A, but we're gonna we're gonna advance all the way into modern times, and I want to come to modern times because I don't know if you're aware of this, but you could now take um, you can now take cruises to Antarctica, um, and they're very very nice. Um, but it opens up a kind of avenue, a different kind of avenue, and a different kind of threat for the thing that would not have been present in 1982. So <clears throat> we have a research slash tourist cruise to Antarctica. That's going to encounter the thing, you know, it could, you know, we don't, it doesn't matter if McCready or McCready or Childs or either or neither were the thing. We'll, we'll just pretend like there's another one there or something. But we have this research vessel that's going to come, drop some scientists off to take a look at things. But we also have some tourists who are, 
you know, maybe more easily panicked or whatever. And it introduces the element of this boat. So like a more direct line for the thing, if it's able to hide and keep itself, uh, you know, uh, invisible long enough and not invisible, but if it's able, if it's able to blend in long enough, then it will be able to get back on this boat after X amount of time, you know, a week or whatever, and then return to the mainland to, uh, to spread itself. So, uh, a direct continuation uh, the the thing takes over a research uh, tourist cruise ship uh, that has become a very popular and very expensive um, ticket uh, in in recent years. Our second, our fourth, our, our second one, but number four on the list here, number number, number four uh, scenario for scenario for a proper sequel. How about from the thing's perspective? Um, in this case. I'm going to have the thing, you know, obviously it survived, um, you know, what happened in Outpost 31, but it's awoken years, years later, um, you know, let's maybe, maybe late eighties towards the fall of the, uh, of the Soviet Union. And this is going to be, uh, so I, I want a particular point to that because we're going to have the thing, uh, waking up in a Russian laboratory and it's going to be, this is definitely experimental filmmaking. Maybe this is something for a, a short film. Um, but we're going to have the thing's perspective on everything as it assimilates different people, what it's thinking, what it's feeling. We'll give it an inner dialogue. I mean, it can clear, it can replicate human speech, right? Like we know that the, the thing in both the sequel, in both the prequel and the original talks, um, you know, even if it's not super, super deep conversation, it can have conversation. So it clearly understands and can, and can, understands language enough that it can um it can respond to things so we could give the thing a sort of inner monologue to describe what it's thinking and in fact there is a kind of like a fan fiction a really well-regarded fan fiction that gives the events of outpost 31 um the you know the view for the point of view from the um from the thing and how it really is on its own just a scientist uh, it, it it knows that it's doing some bad things to the to the uh, the people, but it's only because it's so interested and so fascinated. It finds the human biology fascinating. It finds the human body fascinating. So it's very eager to sort of experiment and see what new people feel like and what what it's like to assimilate and be in, you know have this person's uh, genetic code as a part of them. So it's a really interesting kind of flip. And to me, it gives a little bit more credence to this idea that, um, as I mentioned earlier, that maybe the thing's more of a force of nature than anything else. It's not necessarily good or bad, um, but you can also kind of see it from, you know, maybe it's, it is just a scientist. It's just experimenting. It doesn't necessarily mean to harm things, but that's it doesn't know how else to experiment. So something from uh, something from the thing's perspective would be it would be another a good one. All right, our third one here. How about an homage to King Kong? Um, so somehow in this scenario, somehow the thing has washed up on a remote island off the coast of South America. Uh, this is possible. Um, uh, you know, maybe it is frozen, got washed up to, out to sea somehow into, you know, into the South ocean and then eventually made its way, floated its way to an island, uh, a, a remote island off, off of South America. And then, uh, it, but it, 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 from the lessons it learned at Outpost 31, it learns to kind of live in this sort of maybe sometimes a bit uneasy harmony with the local population. It knows how to blend itself in better. It's not necessarily trying to take over as many bodies as it can. Um, and, and maybe, and maybe even people kind of, um, 
you know, maybe kind of people, the, the people of this particular civilization, we can even go and kind of make them very, uh, make them very primitive. So they're still kind of like a pagan civil, civilization or something that worships multiple deities or whatever. And maybe they think this is one of their deities that has come and, and taken the body of, of one of their own. Um, but where the homage to King Kong is coming, obviously, you, you'll know where I'm going with this. The, you know, now we're going to, this sort of harmony that they have found is going to be disrupted by some researchers who want to come see why this tribe uh, or this, you know, tribe, society, civilization, whatever it is, why it's changed so profoundly in recent years. Obviously, it's because of the thing, the presence of the thing, but, you know, they had, you know, it, it changed so profoundly from the last time that that these people were studied. And thus, the the delicate balance gets thrown off and we have a King Kong situation where, uh, this this people these people's um, sort of living deity is now threatened uh, by the outsiders. All right, so how about our next scenario here? Uh, our number two scenario for a proper sequel. Um, so <clears throat> this is going to follow the McCree. Your child is the thing theory. So we're going to have doesn't matter. You pick one. McCree, your child. One of the two is survives and is picked up by the rescue team. They are the thing, but the thing. Again, learning from what happened is not as eager to assimilate. It waits a long time and it learns more and more. It goes and lives the life of Childs and McCready, you know, back in back in America. It, you know, it it lives as that person, lives in its skin for maybe it's even maybe it's even years. It lives this way before um, collecting all the information it needs to collect. Um, and, and begin assimilating people, or maybe it lives long enough that it doesn't begin assimilating people, right? Like we could even flip that. And, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if that's as interesting, but you could even flip it. And, you know, we have this idea of like the authentic self, maybe, maybe the, the thing finds its, finds its authentic self and finds that its authentic self is some kind of harmony with humanity. Um, not as interesting as, as, uh, as it being a little bit more deceptive and, assimilating humanity anyway but you know something to think about there and all right how about our our number one scenario for a proper sequel how about a post thing world so the thing has made it off of off of antarctica out of the outpost and it is it it, what what was theorized to happen has happened there are, are people that have been most of humanity has been assimilated by the thing and so we're going for kind of like a Walking Dead kind of scenario here, where most of humanity has been has been assimilated by the thing, and uh, but we have pockets of people, and to sort of to kind of dissuade because it was difficult for the thing to, um, you know, to uh, assimilate in Antarctica. We have whatever remains of humanity kind of living in extreme conditions, right? As kind of a, a, a buffer against the thing being so easily the thing so easily infiltrating. So you know, you got people living up in the Arctic Circle or people have migrated to Antarctica or other cold places up in the mountains. Maybe they're, maybe they're in super hot place. You know, maybe there's people who are living on the edges of volcanoes or whatever now, but uh, you know, or underground completely, but could be an interesting sequel, a post thing world in which most of humanity has been assimilated by this visiting alien. All right. That is it for our first entry into the vault. The Thing from 1982. I think I have made my case very clear. If you disagree, feel free to let me know in the comments or wherever you happen to be finding this. Uh, always up for a little debate on, on this thing, on these kind of things. Um, and again, if you've been drinking along to every time I said The Thing, 
uh, God bless you. You are, you are with the angels now, more than likely. But uh, if this is not exactly your particular flavor, stay tuned next week. We will be talking about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia as our next entry into the vault. And then after that, uh, we're bringing back a guest, uh, a, 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 a beloved guest. Um, our hockey correspondent, Rob Nugent, is coming back to talk about the seminal 1993 film, Dazed and Confused. Uh, so those are the next, those are the upcoming episodes, the next couple of weeks. And we should have one more. Uh, the, the vault entry is to be determined at this point in time, but we will have one more after that. But you have, you have, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia and dazed and confused to look forward to in the coming weeks. So that's it. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for subscribing. We will catch you on the flip side.